0: WBZ original.
1: I thought you didn't like the word moist. Are you, you to... I don't. <laughs> she think really it's does. And you just used your own least I favorite I word. Used own moist. Voice. you rolling she on this. Moist.
2: No. I know.
1: <laughs> Isn't there science behind that though? That women, for some reason, women don't like the word moist. I That's know, a whole yeah. thing.
2: I know. I don't. <laughs> I mean, I don't mind. When the word Eric moist. puts it in a I graphic, like moist, like, hey, moist weekend. I'm like, no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Studio BZ, Alston's number one podcast, numero uno, we continue to be. Season four, episode 13, hope that isn't bad luck. Welcome in everybody, I'm Paula Evans
1: And I'm John Keller. I'm Leah Martin. It's nice to see your your dewy, supple skin today, <laughs> wow. folks.
2: You too. Hey, you know, guys, this is a family a background
1: podcast, okay? There's a background to why Jeez. I said that.
2: In the professional.
1: You know, um, what we got on the week What's on the show this week? John, dogs always here. Ha- John
2: always has a nice glow. Yeah,
1: he does. Him. He's 85. He looks, you know, not a day over 62. You're no. dead to me now.
2: <laughs> uh, let's talk about the high cost of living around here.
1: Mm, yes, we're going to be talking about some new reports on just how bad the cost of living has gotten here in Massachusetts. And... One particular solution that has re-emerged, which is rent control. Banned mm-hmm. in 1994 in Massachusetts, there is a state rep and a growing movement to bring it back in some Form. So, I sat down with State Representative Nika El-Ugardo to talk about her proposal to unban rent control in Massachusetts.
0: And then, believe it or not, mercifully, the New Hampshire primary is almost upon us, coming up on February 11th. What is the state of play up there? Who? It looks like a total toss-up uh, between the top four. Could there be a dark horse coming on strong? We'll take a deep dive into the whole situation up there with a guy who's known as the New Hampshire primary expert to end all experts, James Pindle, the political reporter for the Boston Globe. If you were around and alert and interested in the news back in 1994, you may remember one of the big news events of that year was a statewide ballot question that banned rent control, which up until then had been a staple in Cambridge, Brookline, Somerville, right here in Alston, uh, and a number of other urban communities around the state. 51.3 percent of statewide voters voted to ban it, and that's where things have been up until now. And Liam, you had a chance to sit down. Are were both of you in on this? No, Liam did
2: this one. You had a
0: chance to sit down with a state legislator, a legislator who's involved in the
1: push to bring it back. Last week there was a big protest at the state house about rising rents in Massachusetts, especially in the bigger cities, and just how bad it's gotten. And a lot of people want to bring rent control back in some way to at least give cities and towns like Boston, Cambridge, and Somerville, where the rents have been skyrocketing for a couple of decades now, the power to re-implement some sort of cap, whether it's set at percentage or dollar terms on how much rent can rise each year in those cities. There was just this report out from Zillow uh, this week to just sort of highlight how crazy this has gotten. The total market value... Of the Boston area's housing grew fifty three point three percent during the twenty tens. Mm. So in one decade, it doubled mm. to almost one trillion dollars. You couldn't match that in yeah. the stock market. I mean if you exactly owned, if you were investing in real estate, you made a killing. And for the people who own those properties, that has been a gold mine. Yeah. For the people who are renting, it has been insane. Yeah. You're talking some years your rent will double. And this means people get moved out and have nowhere else to go. There were people who were at this protest saying, I'm going to leave the state. I've got to go somewhere where it's just cheaper. And this old solution of rent control has kind of reemerged, and people are considering this again in Massachusetts.
2: Mm. It's interesting. I was looking at a a quote. uh, This is from the Financial Times, and it says, rent control in Cambridge, which commenced – only two months after the November 1994 referendum, was voted into law by Massachusetts cities and towns that had never experienced rent control, while ironically the three Massachusetts municipalities with active rent control regimes, Cambridge, Boston, and Brookline, each of which voted to maintain rent control, were overruled by the statewide majority. Yes. So this is going to be a sticky political Well, and issue.
0: There were, look, there were a lot of abuses of the rent right. control system. you always going to You know, that. people gaming the system. If you knew someone, mm-hmm. you could get your hands on a rent control. It wasn't right. wasn't means
1: tested, for mm. instance. So right. uh, that's all going to come out in the wash again now. It is the third highest median rent in the United States. Boston is. Number one is San Francisco. Number two is New York. And the median rent is $2,400. And you got to imagine the type of salary that you need to have to be able to spend $2,400 a month, especially if you've got kids or whatever. It's pushing families out of the city. And you're right that the, the the cities in 1994 voted to keep it. Right. But by one or two points, this referendum that was backed, of course, with millions of dollars by right. the real estate industry Yuck. and the landlord industry uh, passed. And it all of state-wide. a sudden, now no one can do <clears throat> rent control. And Nika Yugardo's and some of the people who back this legislation is, We understand that with too much rent control, you get less housing, right? Because Mm -hmm. landlords and developers don't want to build as much. And neglected housing too. Neglected housing as well because there's, you know, landlords aren't making as much money.
2: And we've all heard Governor Baker and... Mayor Marty Walsh, talk about the importance of building more units in the city Mm -hmm. of Boston in particular, uh, because the circle is getting further and further out where people can afford to live. But when you talk to people, uh, lawyers, builders, people in real estate, they will tell you developing and building housing in the city of Boston, in Massachusetts in general, but Boston in particular, is extremely difficult. Mm. There are so many hurdles. Uh, so much regulation, so much that you need to go to. This is why a city ends up with such a uh, dearth of housing stock, and it's a problem. All
1: right, let's listen in to Representative Nika El ugardo about her solution to this problem.
2: It's
3: possible now with a program that
1: paper. Thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate it.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: You have a bill that would bring back rent control, at least in some form. As it regards rent control, what would your bill do?
3: It provides the option. So it doesn't bring it back. It removes the ban. So the current ban says that we recognize that market rates are best for the public. And I think that's an outdated concept. It's wildly false in today's market. And so it gives towns and municipalities the opportunity to choose a different kind of rent control. We're not trying to do... Recreate the mistakes of the 80s, right? -hmm. It's not your grandfather's rent control. Uh, It's the kind of rent control that can be targeted to localities. It can be uh, targeted uh, time-bound. And we're giving towns and municipalities the opportunity to say, we want this in our toolkit.
1: Your bill would also implement some tenant protections. In addition to rent control, what are some of those protections that you're asking for?
3: Well, you know when you move as a renter, sometimes you're asked to do three sometimes even four months. So it enables towns and municipalities to choose, or not, to regulate upfront fees. Mm. And that's huge because it makes it possible for people to move when rents do get too high.
1: Um, Voters banned rent control, as we were saying, in the 1990s by a 51 to 49 margin. I was there for that. (laughs) What did we see as a result of housing prices from that and evictions? And why do you think we should bring it back in some form?
3: Well, my husband and I were uh, here around that time. We had a rent control apartment, right? And uh, we we're both MIT grads. We have a high earning capacity. But when our uh, homeowner, our landlord, said, look, I'm going to increase the rent by $300 mm. over a $900 rent.
1: And that was right after this passed in ninety six.
3: That was probably 96 right? And so, uh, you know, that was unaffordable for us. So we had to move and we had the ability to move, but it was very difficult. And we kept chasing rents. We moved about 10 times over the course of uh, 10 to 15 years, trying to stabilize. And really what happened is our income increased. So we never really um, would have been able to find that stability unless we had been able to almost double our income over the last 20 years.
1: Would this allow municipalities and towns to do whatever they want in terms of rent control and say, you know what, rents can't rise at all, or are there some limits placed on them in terms of what they can do?
3: We encourage them to place limits that are specific to the context of their region, and they can even uh, limit it to a neighborhood, or they can limit it to a number of months or a number of years, whatever they want. But one thing that the law, um, as written, the legislation as written, does preclude, we don't want rent control being applied to units of uh to uh, buildings of three units or less. We want small property owners to be protected and to be able to do what they need to 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 keep their properties up to date.
1: And despite that limit, there's gonna be fierce opposition to this bill. There already is. Sure. Landlords and the real estate industry are pushing back. They point out that we, in some places, have a housing shortage right now. And they argue that rent control will lower the supply not increase it, and make that problem worse. What's yeah. your response to that?
3: Well, I understand two aspects of their concern. So one is you're looking at what happened in the 80s, and you're looking at what happened in the 70s, and you're saying, we don't want to recreate those problems. Two is they might be looking at what's happening in other states. Uh, there's actually a movement towards rent control. So states like Oregon and California have already uh, made some advances in this regard. What, what we're saying with our bill is we want to learn from those mistakes. We want to have a smarter, more targeted, form of rent control that's locally determined, but also if we only did rent control and even if we only did tenant protections, that would be a mistake. So that's the second way that I agree with them. But what's happened is a lot of housing advocates and legislators have put together a creative package of proposals that include making uh, supply access more easy, making it easier to build, easier to develop, easier to do zoning reform. With a package that includes those elements, rent control and tenant protections are not only uh, helpful but necessary.
1: Governor Charlie Baker is opposed to the bill as well, as I'm sure you know. He described it as, quote, exactly the wrong direction we should go. He's called instead for these changes to the zoning laws to make it easier for towns and municipalities to build more. Sure. Where do you stand on his proposal and what do you say to his criticism of your bill?
3: I've been supportive of his proposal for increasing supply, making it easier to get zoning approval to do development. Uh, with some changes that Chairman Honan and uh, my colleague, Representative Andy Vargas, they uh, have a bill, House Bill 1288, which essentially takes the entire text of the governor's bill, puts a few more protections on for tenants. I have another bill that increases public housing. That's about to, we call it exec out of the housing committee. So that means it's going to be uh, passed out favorably from the housing committee mm-hmm. Uh I agree that we need those things. Uh, Where I disagree with the governor is that it should be the state's decision what towns and municipalities do. They need all the power we can give them. They can choose not to do rent control. They can choose not to do uh, the other tenant protections that we've added into the bill. Uh, Every provision they can ignore or every provision they can adopt. Their voters get to decide. As I said, voters have evolved over 25 years and they Mm -hmm. need the opportunity to do that. And they need the power to exist locally. We cannot, as state legislators, determine, even even as a governor, we can't determine what needs to happen in Western Mass, on the South Shore, in gateway cities, on the North Shore. You know, the locals have to be able to make that decision and they need to be able to hold local leaders accountable, which means if they're going to have that responsibility, they need to have the whole toolkit.
1: Your argument is... There, of course, is a housing shortage, and we want more rental oh, yeah. properties to both be available. So air. we should do what Governor Baker is calling for in terms Absolutely. of zoning, but add in rent control where we're dealing with both the supply issue and the fact that we've seen rents skyrocket, especially in towns like uh, cities like Boston, Cambridge, and some of those surrounding sure. areas.
3: Sure. i say there are at least three components to solving the housing crisis. One is supply. The other is public housing because tenant protections don't make housing more affordable. And the third is tenant protections on that other end. So increased supply helps homeowners and and renters and makes it possible for developers to get in the game who might have been shut out of the market with the increased cost of development. But public housing is something that we originally conceived as a federal housing project. We need to take over what public housing means. Uh, We had some uh, BU students from the data science department there do an analysis and, and actually the governor's administration was really helpful to my team in providing various databases for us to understand how much surplus land is there out there mm. that's owned by the state that we aren't even using for affordable housing purposes and the very, very conservative estimate with limited databases and undergrad and graduate students doing the work is, is uh, it's north of 1.2 billion dollars yeah. and we think it might be double that when you take other uh, contingencies into, into effect. If you now I'm not making any assumptions about your background Liam but if you were uh, a multimillionaire
2: oh in sure. terms of if only
3: <laughs> in terms of your assets right mm-hmm. but you had no job and you had no cash flow and so you could no longer afford your mortgage you would be thinking about all those other assets and how you could bring them to bear to support your situation, right? Mm -hmm. So we cannot cash flow or revenue our way out of the housing crisis. We have so many things we need to do with any increases in revenue, from transit to education, uh, healthcare, and the list goes on. To deal with the housing crisis, we have to be smart about making sure we're tapping into state-owned land and assets, to be smart about making sure we're increasing supply. But if we don't um, address the uh, the crushing imp- impacts of the market increasing too quickly on tenants, that's going to be a problem. And we're not even primarily or only talking about low-income tenants. The housing crisis has creeped into the middle class. Lots of people like you and me who might have the blessing of Of a really decent income, I hope they Mm. give you a decent income here, (laughs) Uh, it's still problematic some of the costs that we have associated with our housing, right? And so we need to give people options to deal with that. Um, I don't know, a lot of people don't realize that uh, in big cities like Boston and cities across Massachusetts, as many as 40% of of our population are renters and sometimes over 50%, Mm. right? And about 25% of those people in cities like Boston pay over 50% of their income on their housing costs. Mm. And across the state, more than half of the people, or about half of the people, are paying more than 30% of their income, which is still considered to be a burden uh, that's uh, not sustainable. And
1: that's money they can't spend at the local restaurant, et cetera, et cetera. Or on the food to feed their
3: kids, depending on their income.
1: Of course. What would your response be to someone who says, look, the voters voiced their opinion on this 25 years ago. It was only a two-point margin. But they said they don't want this. Right. How does the state legislature then override that and go ahead and do it?
3: So my daughter got married a year ago. She just celebrated her first anniversary. She and her husband are great savers. I'm so glad she married a good saver. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, they're looking to buy a house right now. Right now they're renters. And she started up grad school. They tried to move. It's just impossible for them to move, right? They have to stay put despite the inconvenience and what that means in terms of transit and using cars, et cetera. Mm. And that's because the market is out of control. My daughter was not born when we as voters made that decision. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the fact that almost half of voters wanted rent control to continue. Plus, the conception that we had in the mid-90s coming out of 80s economics is, uh, might have been false then, but it's certainly false now. Free markets are not appropriate for goods where people will pay anything they can to get what they need. Those are called inelastic demand, goods of inelastic demand. That means uh, you know is like that, mm. right? That means however much money you have, you're going to pay, you know what that means? Equilibrium prices are going to go up, 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 as long as the top payers have a higher ability to pay. And mm. that means what it means to be in the middle is going to be out of reach for even a median income person. And that's exactly what we've experienced. So I think voters have not had to learn that in school, like maybe I did. They, they, they actually have experienced it from the school of life, and I think uh, many people have evolved on this issue, and that's why we see such great support from across the state when we had our hearing on this bill a couple days ago.
1: Is the rent control portion of this bill going to pass? Do you think it will?
3: Well, I'll tell you the truth. A year ago, I would have said, no, it's going to take us four years to get this passed. But I also would have thought that my public housing bill would have taken at least three years to get passed. Mm -hmm. And I'm feeling really good about that right now. I think the appetite for innovation and the need for municipalities to take control of the situation in locally contextualized, targeted ways is so high right now that we could possibly see some version of a local option. What we won't see is a requirement to do rent control. I sure. doubt that. And there are some bills that would do that. Um, there are other rent control bills that, that have been heard recently that uh, provide strong rent control provisions but a little less flexibility around the local option piece. Our bill, uh, Representative Mike Connolly. Who is my co filer and a strong leader on this? Our bill uh, really maximizes outside of, for, for units of for four units or, or above. It really maximizes what um, municipalities can do to make it um, not only accessible for tenants, but uh, reasonable provisions for the landowners as well. And mm-hmm. I think we might I think we might get something out of that.
1: We'll be following where it goes. State Representative El Elugarda, thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate it. Thank oh, it's you. my pleasure. The unexpected is not knowing what's going to happen. Uh, that's the problem.
2: So one of the more depressing things that I hear, and I'm sure you have people in your lives, too, who say this, too. I have young, young 20-somethings in my family who constantly say, you know, we're not going to be able to do what you did. We're never going to afford a home. We're going to have to delay having children. We're Mm -hmm. never going to be able to get out and be on our own. They really see a bleak picture, and that is... Dangerous for a society, I think, when young people think there is no way to get ahead. And John, you were showing us these cost of living figures.
0: Well, you know, from the, the, all around the country, the anxiety or economic agony of the young is mirrored uh, among many of their elders, seniors living mm-hmm. on fixed incomes, certainly. And yeah, I just pulled up the most recent state by state rankings of cost of living that I could find on the internet. And there we are, Massachusetts, the fifth most expensive state to live in. Now this includes, you know, uh, groceries, uh, uh, energy costs, right. mm-hmm. transportation costs, housing costs, of course, uh, all sorts of utilities, and you know that has to be factored in. This bill, this rent control bill, uh, comes up on Beacon Hill at a time when there's a lot of talk about raising taxes mm-hmm. to uh, help fund. Improving mass transit to help pay for the big education reform bill, and there's a reason why broad-based tax hikes, like the ones they're talking about, gas tax, income tax, have flopped. Uh, on Beacon Hill over the last 20-odd years. It's because of the sky-high cost of living, yes. the squeeze that everybody, but most notably the middle class, feels, and their resulting reluctance to even entertain the
1: idea of more taxes. Well, and as this list shows, it's, it's not just housing. Of course I mean, I think not. about the things that my parents didn't have to pay for right. that I do. Mm. Their cell phone bill. Uh, even cable bill, you didn't child pay that. care, uh, you know data on your cell phone, the child care expense, college debt is probably actually the biggest part of the equation. My mom probably went to college for two thousand dollars. Sure, yeah. and everything that you look at in life mm. is way more expensive than it was. Not just in, you know, way past inflation terms. And at some point, what do you do? And I was saying to John,
2: having grown up during the Dukakis administration, the first and the second, uh, at the time when we were known as Taxachusetts, Mm. right, and there was sort of this uh, feeling that people should pay their fair share, this should be spread around – the housing costs were nowhere near what they are Mm -hmm. now. And that first $1,000 check that's going out from young people to student loan debt wasn't there, as you point out, because of college tuitions. So the reaction that the legislature might get by proposing tax increases, John, even though this is a blue state, might be wildly different than it was then.
0: And they're all up for re-election this year. And they're
2: up for (laughs) re-election. Good times.
0: So in the meantime, rumor has it Uh, there's a presidential race going on. Is there? And uh, the first big event is February 3rd in Iowa, but I've covered the Iowa caucuses. Let's be honest about it. That's a joke. Uh, The first real voting uh, in in the context of a primary is February 11th, right around the corner in New Hampshire. And uh, it's it's a toss-up. It's a, mm. it's a dog and cat fight up there. Uh, you could throw a blanket in the polls over the top four, and there are a couple of others who are bubbling up from underneath. I sat down the other day with James Pindle of the Boston Globe, who went to college in Des Moines, Iowa, mm. at Drake University, uh, because of his interest in presidential politics, and wound up working in New Hampshire and becoming uh, arguably the nation's foremost journalism expert, on the New Hampshire primary, and we took a deep dive into what in God's name is going to come out of that unholy mess. This is Greater Boston, cradle of American democracy. Maybe I imagined it, but I thought I saw a poll just the other day of New Hampshire residents in which a surprisingly large percentage of them said they didn't care if New Hampshire yielded its Mm first-in-the-nation status. I mean, if New Hampshire residents Don't care in overwhelming
4: numbers. Why should we? I think it's an important poll to to, to point out. It's something that has been consistent for a long time. Uh, uh, We were talking a little bit before we started. You know, this is my sixth presidential primary. Um, I'm about as biased and as baked in as you can get on Iowa, New Hampshire. I went to college in Des Moines because of the Iowa caucuses. I worked at the Des Moines Register. My entire career has been Iowa, New Hampshire. But I think it's a very important point to mention that this is a story about elites, um, that political elites— uh, really want, uh, in a, particularly Iowa and New Hampshire, really, really care about this uh, system. Uh, it's what gets them ambassadorships at some point. It gets what gets them appointments inside Washington. They would be totally irrelevant, and no one would ever call them for their endorsement. And but, the Chambers of Commerce love it. Oh, of course. Um, yes, but uh, obviously presidential candidates are not calling uh, everybody. They're not calling the worker at Walmart. Um, they're calling state reps, which obviously uh, New Hampshire is obviously a volunteer legislature. They make a hundred dollars a year, so I mean, yes. But right. um, uh, and then uh, and the other people who really care about it are all the campaign operatives and the candidates. I mean, if a candidate has run for president before, uh, they know the difference between Derry and Dartmouth College. Uh, they they probably have contacts there. They have cell phones. They're familiar with it. They know the press. They want to see this continue. Same way with operatives. The part of their pitch is that they can come back to Iowa and New Hampshire and, like, they know the lay of the land. They know how you win. Uh, hire me. So among the political elites, that's why we have the status quo still continuing. But underneath it, to your point, most people in New Hampshire don't care. It's sort of fun. You can take your kid right. to meet maybe the next president of the United States. but uh, You'll do that once. But it's not – if it went away, I, as this poll mentioned, most people don't care.
0: Well, other than Cory Booker this cycle, uh, mm-hmm. may his campaign rest in peace. Uh, was there anyone else who sort of, quote unquote, camped out in New Hampshire, sh- started showing up the summer of, uh, uh, of uh, you know, eighteen? 18. To uh, was there anyone else who tried to play that card? And it doesn't seem to
4: me that that ever works. Uh, it has not worked. There's been a direct, there's been an indirect relationship between the amount of time you spend in these early states and how big of a deal you are, and yeah. that has happened um, probably over the last three cycles or so. Clearly, the last person it really, really worked for. Uh, was Howard Dean. You can make the argument. It actually also worked a little bit for, for Bernie Sanders. But, you know, uh, Joe Lieberman moved to the state in 2004. And uh, Chris Dodd moved to Iowa. Moved to right? Iowa. Right. And of course, I think they're basing that off of uh, uh, Dick Gephardt moving his mom to Iowa back in the day. Um, uh, Joe, you know, John Huntsman said, I want to put my stake and, and forget New Hampshire. And and obviously, it did for John McCain. I guess if we're going back, uh, it obviously worked for McCain twice. He, he okay. both uh, said no to Iowa. This time, to answer your question directly, I mean, Andrew Yang has spent a tremendous amount of time in these early states. I do think that's what's contributed to him being at least a little bit in the conversation. And But overall, I think one of the major meta stories about this particular 2020 cycle is this is the most nationalized primary process uh, since the Iowa-New Hampshire system began 40 years ago, uh, or almost 50 years ago now. What do you mean by that? Uh, well, I mean by that is this. Um, th- before, uh, it has been all about how are you doing uh, in these local states. Uh, what kind of activists do you have? These are the metrics of the invisible primary, as they call it, polling, money, uh, and sort of the organization that you're putting together. This time, uh, those states still very much matter, but they are sharing their clout in this early process. So not so doing a town hall on CNN, which has really done a lot of those this cycle, and Fox is doing them as well, or appearing on Rachel Maddow on MSNBC, is a much more important deal for your campaign now uh, than it is having that, camp, uh, that town hall in Nashua. And why? Well, there's some very structural reasons why. It's not that they want to poo-poo these early states, you know, to make the debate stage Uh, read these Democrats, is a big deal. And if you look back, it has killed a lot of these campaigns. Uh, Cory Booker said it killed him. Um, I mean, you can go down the line. Seth Moulton never made a debate stage. But if you have not made a debate, Julian Castro, if you have not made a debate stage, you are then relegated in about four weeks to to 1% or less. That has been a dramatic thing to watch when you look backwards. Um, And to make those debate stages, you have to uh, either have poll numbers that are really good, um, and they use national metrics for most of those. Or you have to raise money nationwide. Um, literally, you could have to— Off this, the internet. Well, this time, like, for example, in this last debate in Iowa, you had to raise—you had to have 225,000 individual contributors, and they had to be geographically dispersed, so many in so many different states. Right. So you couldn't just bang it up somewhere. Um, and then on, I remember for the October debate anyway, uh, there was, there were only 20 qualifying polls, 12 were national polls. So your job is to do really well by convincing people in Illinois and New York and California that you are our option and that you can give them money. And so now your incentive, and I remember this so well, Marianne Williamson, who just recently dropped out, um, we can talk about her endlessly, I know, but, but when, she was actually at a very illuminating moment because... She was sort of on the ropes early on, and she did not know she was going to make the September debate, which is like sort of the first real test for a lot of these candidates. Uh, so she finishes the debate uh, uh, in July, and there's no debate in August. She finished the debate in July in Detroit, and people were talking about her a lot. Uh, she's supposed to then fly to New Hampshire. She had a, actually a pretty good schedule with some, a lot of party bahs, the, the traditional thing you're supposed to do. Uh, she canceled it at the last minute. Because she got an invitation to go on Anderson Cooper. And so she just kind of went to Chicago, did it from there, and she got destroyed on that interview. But it was tactically the smart move. So the big threat now is not, you know, will Florida try to take out Iowa and New Hampshire or will Michigan try to do it or Louisiana or Delaware, these states you've talked about in the past. The real threat has been cable news and the real threat has been the, the RNC and the DNC, which are putting together national metrics for this primary process the environment you're describing sounds like a pretty good setup for Michael Bloomberg
0: and his strategy right which is I'm not mess I'm, I'm not even going to bother with Iowa and New Hampshire I'm going to jump in on Super Tuesday I'm going to swamp the field with an unprecedented TV buy and uh, go ahead and try and stop me you
4: know if Mike Bloomberg had gotten in the race uh, when most people did I don't think he would have done that play but certainly when he got in in November yeah. uh uh, is the only play for him to make and he's executing I'm sure he pay. I, I know he pays a lot of money for a lot of advice he now apparently has 1,000 staffers that he hired in about seven weeks in 33 different states um, he got good advice and he's taking good advice um, he is now the biggest threat uh, we talk about cable news the process uh, and, and I, look can I just stop for a second before we go to Bloomberg uh, it, this, this nationalization I know we may disagree on this a little bit it does make me sad uh, because in theory, anyway, in theory, uh, what Iowa, and New Hampshire do, however n- non-diverse that they are, um, is that if you're going to run for president, you are a person who's a governor or a senator or a very successful in business. And your whole bubble, your whole lifestyle, who you hang out with at cocktail parties and call on the phone is kind of rarefied air. OK. And so the idea that, yeah, you know, if you want to run for president, all I'm asking is can you spend like 20 days, 30 days, 40 days uh, interacting with everyday people uh, before you go on to be the leader of the free world and make decisions on who to go to war and when to go to war? Because obviously that's just 1% of the population and you don't really interact with that 1% that, that well, except for military generals. And who wins and loses? In the, wins and loses in the tax code, particularly in a time of huge economic uh, inequality, income inequality in particular. Um, I think it's a great thing. My problem this cycle is that that interaction uh, has been limited um, because cable news, uh, will want to make sure they know what questions in advance. They don't write them. I'm not accusing that. They just want to make sure that there aren't 17 healthcare questions, but maybe there should be 17 healthcare questions. Maybe mm-hmm. that person should be able to give a little bit of a speech about their life story interactions, but going back to Bloomberg, and I know I'm just rambling, That's here, all right. but, but going back to Bloomberg, I mean, what's fascinating about that, um, uh, is that I think he's uniquely able to do it because of obviously the money he has. and. And because we may have a total muddled field uh, coming out of these first four states that allow him to come in as a juggernaut, I think he's absolutely fascinating right now. See, I would push back a little and argue that many of these
0: organic interactions in Iowa and New Hampshire are really a sham. That a lot of these town halls, 90-plus percent of the people in there are already supporters of the candidate hosting the town hall. And while there may be the occasional moment, a heckler, a a question that reveals something about
4: the candidate, they're rare, and it's really just for show. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. Uh, But but as opposed to what? And that's the whole question about these things. As opposed to not even having 10% of unscripted moments that could be revealed, real moment. Fair enough, yeah. um, You know, uh, we can go back and forth about whether or not Hillary Clinton uh, really cried, uh, in 2008, the moment that turned her around at Cafe Espresso in Portsmouth, I was there. Uh, uh, or the, you know, but it actually was a legit question from a woman who I do know actually, and uh, it was it was not scripted, and it was an actual human moment. And you have these human moments that do reveal character often uh, in New Hampshire and in Iowa because they're set up that you could do that versus a staid you know TV set. Uh, right. Or 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 me. I mean, again, this is not about me. I know I, you probably feel the same way. It's not like oh, I get to. I've met. I've met and, and interviewed every presidential candidate, every president going back to HW. Like it's not about me. It's about what I think is amazing is this human interaction between regular people and these candidates. And if we don't allow that to happen, I think something is lost. Uh, speaking of human moments, is there any doubt in your
0: mind that what occurred? right after the debate (laughs) ended last week between
4: Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders was an authentic moment? I question everything. I'm a reporter. (laughs) Um, But, you know, knowing the senator as we both do, uh, it felt very authentic. Um, She looked like she was ready to strip the bark off him. Yeah. And she went right for it. And it's not like, uh, I don't think you could plan that. I, yeah. But I mean, but skeptically, you knew what Bernie was going to say. So if you're gaming this out like, well, he's going to deny it, whatever, then you can call him a liar. Like you can see that. I mean, I'm a skeptical dude. OK, um, but I, I felt very authentic. And it, clearly everything leading up to it was not uh, yeah. everything up to it was very well played. Probably I, you've covered her more intensely than I have over the years in Massachusetts as I was in other states. But um, it was this her shrewdest political play. In the history of her career,
0: I would put it right up there with the moment in the first Brown-Warren debate in 2012, which we, which I moderated here at WBZ, where uh, uh, the first question I asked was about character, Uh, because that had been a very tough campaign. They had both questioned each other's character. And of course, uh, Brown was uh, harping heavily on the whole Native American ancestry right. thing, and so I said, "You know, is your opponent's character an issue?" Brown went first, in alphabetical order there, and he pounced and he was he pointed at her said, "Look at her; she's clearly not Native American." Right. You may remember this, and it was a pretty. Actually, I was listening on
4: the radio to this debate, so I didn't see it until it later. was a pretty blistering to yeah. way mm-hmm. to
0: open up the first televised right. debate, and then it gets to be Warren's term and. She's looking like the cat that swallowed the canary. And she said, well, I was just going to say, I I think Senator Brown's a nice guy. (laughs) And you could feel the air come out of the room and come out of the Brown campaign. And in fact, that's what happened. He slumped in the polls after that. And uh, the rest is history. But uh, uh, so she, uh, I I hope everyone now understands that whatever else Elizabeth Warren is, in a situation like this, when it comes to politics,
4: uh, she's she's a killer. And she's very qu- I mean, very quick. I mean, very quick. I mean, yeah. probably even with jokes. I mean, she's very quick. <laughs> yeah. She's a very—I yeah. mean, I'm not breaking news here by saying she's a very intelligent woman. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, in that situation—and it felt—that's why I feel like this moment was very authentic. Like, okay, we're done now? Because I've been seething over here, <laughs> and I'm going to go right to you, right. and I'm going to tell you, you called me a liar on Well, the TV. notion that she's
0: some academic granny— No. Who just doesn't have the testosterone to mix it up and throw sharp elbows is ridiculous. And in your entire
4: career. I mean, this is one thing that I admire about some people in academia, and here we're we're going off a different topic, but those who are actually uh, get out there and in the game and seeing it in real life, whatever their topic is, those are my favorite people. And so, um, you know, when I have to call around for pundits or professors or someone to put uh, things into context... I definitely pay attention to the ones I know are showing up and actually talking to real people versus the people who just read a newspaper from their ivory tower. Those are my favorite people. They see the dynamic. So James. And Warren was one of those people, obviously. What is Deval Patrick doing? I think he wants to know that right now. Um, You can see the theory. You can see that he really wanted to do it. uh, But that conversation was months ago uh, when he first got in the race. Um, uh, He is – now figured out that uh, he's got about three weeks left in this campaign, and it's, it's dumb to get out now. He's, he can—he never staffed up to crazy levels that he can't afford it like Kamala Harris or even Cory Booker. Um, uh, so, I mean, it's just riding out the clock. I mean, it just seemed to me that for him to have a snowball's chance, he had to get in the— d- Absolutely. One of the debates, absolutely, and he was never going to get in one of these debates. In fact, when he got in, he was—it uh, was very obvious he was going to miss the December debate um, because uh, structurally he wouldn't have time for the polls. He wouldn't have time to raise the money because I think the deadline was the the next week or like ten days after that or something. Uh, so he just couldn't set it up, set himself up for, up for success. You know. Uh, Candidates uh, will often, when you talk to or potential candidates, you often talk to them like, hey, you're thinking about getting the race. And you have a genuine off the record conversation. You know, they are they're right. I mean, a lot of them are like I got to see a path or I or here is my path. What do you think? Is that is that a good path? I don't think it. I mean, clearly Duvall made up a path in his mind that uh, was not like I just legit not there. Um, <laughs> and so like that, that leaves aside his talent. That leaves aside his, you know, he's a smart guy, there's no question, and very good on this stuff, my goodness. But, you know, when we spend time with him on the ground, people, they're like, it's just it's just too late.
0: When you're, you know this, when you're a political reporter, there's a steady flow of uh, conspiracy theories coming into your <laughs> inbox. And a couple of the ones about the Patrick candidacy were mm-hmm. that uh, he was sent by a, a, Biden disdaining forces, maybe surrounding uh, uh, former President Obama, Obama right. uh, to uh, take a bite out of Joe Biden in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was another theory that he was uh, sent by anti-Warren people to take a bite out of Liz mm-hmm. Warren in New Hampshire. What do you make of those? They these sound you, bogus you to me. I, I, don't, I don't. Obviously,
4: s- I can find you five people that would back that up um, in oh. terms of well, that person was anti. You know. I, yeah. Uh, but if he was sent, uh, then he was sent without any money. Uh, yes, he got a super. He has a super pack uh, with some friends locally here doing right. some things, but uh, they are not backing that up. I mean, uh, the other thing we have to say about Patrick, to be fair to him, is you have to wonder. And I think we have both know what happened, but you have to wonder what would happen if Mike Bloomberg didn't announce at the exact same time. Bloomberg is so huge. A billion dollars being spent putting together the campaign doing it in a non-traditional way. Um, that the energy of the new guy coming to the race was all Bloomberg. And Patrick was like, "Oh yeah, I guess he's I guess he's doing that too." If Bloomberg did not exist, I think Patrick would still basically be in the exact same spot, but he never even got a shot at the beginning because Bloomberg, the Bloomberg factor, I think. Okay,
0: James, 3 weeks till the New Hampshire primary. <laughs> Two weeks till Iowa. I guess yeah. we have to talk about them together. Yeah. I won't uh, be so crass as to ask you for predictions. Good. Because we know that that's, <laughs> uh, particularly this time, where everybody, it's just a total toss-up yeah. in both places, but uh, talk, educate our listeners All right, so, so let's, let's do this. Can we do this? To expect, okay? Can we do this?
4: Yeah. Um, uh, what is the percentage, ch- this is where I think we're at, what is the percentage chance that the same person is going to win Iowa and New Hampshire? So let's play this out because it's not this in theory for our listeners. Let's, let's play along here. OK, so clearly uh, it, this question matters. Every single time this has happened, a person's won Iowa, New Hampshire on the Democratic side. By the way, no Republicans ever done that. But uh, the, the only time this has ever every time this has happened, they became the nominee. There's nothing stopping them. Jimmy Carter, right? Um, Al Gore. Um, uh, you can go. Uh, there's like four other uh, two other examples, I think, of the, where this has happened. Um, They've never been denied—John Kerry—never been denied the nomination. Um, all right. So uh, if history suggests that uh, someone who's a neighboring state, so Bernie or Warren, will win New Hampshire um, if they are in the game, uh, then if Bernie or Warren win Iowa— You can see that they're going to win New Hampshire and you can see that the the nominee, though, this is where Bloomberg gets very, this is the dream scenario for Mike Bloomberg is he can come in like, I'll save the party from going completely wacko uh, at the the end. Um, However, if it's Buttigieg, is Buttigieg automatically going to win New Hampshire? He's got a lot going on. He's got more staff than anywhere else. He just he has the most. We got this week the most high profile endorsement yet in the New Hampshire primary with uh, U.S. Rep. Uh, Andy Custer endorsing him on Friday. Um, uh, maybe. What about Joe Biden? Yeah. Right? What, about what about Joe, Joe Biden? Biden? So the person who I, I you know I I am as guilty as you know since we're on a podcast and being casual I'm as guilty as anyone else for uh, dismissing him in this campaign. Uh, from the get-go in terms of it just never felt real enough on the ground, and it felt like name recognition only. And obviously you have to, I, I fully admit, uh, I mean, how can you not? It's facts or facts. It's he not looked horrible. My... Yeah. He looked horrible, but he's facts or facts. He's still, uh, with the new real politics averages as we're taping this, He's ahead in Iowa and New Hampshire, and he's ahead nationally. And so, I mean, like, the staying power of Joe Biden is something that has not been explored and recognized enough. I'm sitting here recognizing it, uh, defying a lot of odds, I think. Um, So, Okay, I I still don't think he has the organization in Iowa to pull off a win if he did. Look, if he did in a time when folks just won electability and they don't know what that means— uh, I hear it from people in New Hampshire. They literally have said, I'm not the biggest Joe Biden fan, but if I was like, goes with them, I mean, okay. Yeah. And so, I mean, so yeah. that's the, so when we go talk about three weeks out, I think the real question is, are we headed to uh, the proposition that some person's going to win the same two states? Are they not? Are we going to have four winners of the first early states, which I think is highly unlikely, but we could have three. Um, and if that's the case, Remember where the calendar lines up here, folks. All right. <clears throat> we, got new, uh, we got Iowa on February 3rd. Eight days later, you have New Hampshire. Yeah. Then this is where New Hampshire could really matter. And we haven't explored this enough. The largest gap in the calendar is after New Hampshire. So the person who wins New Hampshire has 11 days to just love life. Uh, meanwhile, the winner of the Iowa caucus, well, there may be two or three because we talked about this on our TV segment, that Iowa is going to have different winners on different metrics, on delegates, on popular vote, and however that's going to go. The next day is the State of the Union with an impeached president. So, I mean, I, I don't know how that's all going to work out um, <laughs> in, in terms of your bump after your momentum after Iowa. Um, but again, you have 11 days after New Hampshire uh, till we get to Nevada, um, which is on a Saturday. And then you got a week after the winner of Nevada to South Carolina. Now, everyone talks, oh, my goodness, South Carolina. This is where the campaign really matters because no one can win the nomination or no one can be president on the Democratic side without African-American voters. And African-American voters make up 60 percent of the South Carolina Democratic primary. And this is where I remind that you're not looking at the calendar enough because there's only three days between the South Carolina primary and Super Tuesday. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be a lot of candidates, and <clears throat> I'm talking about Pete Buttigieg, uh, who are going to be deciding, you know, I just wasn't, this was not working for me in South Carolina. And like, I legit right. tried. Forget it. But I got like California and Texas, I got 35% of all delegates being decided uh, in you know the next week. Uh, literally the next week. I'm not going back to South so, Carolina. So uh, whatever, was South Carolina. And I'll let Joe Biden or whomever else take that. Because, um, you know, like with California, it's not a popular vote. It's congressional district by congressional district. Right. So you can surgically put things take together. But you districts. need to be present yeah. and, along with your campaign ads or Texas or whatever else. So uh, I, I have no idea what this picture looks like. And I and, know uh, we say it every cycle. Uh, it felt really real last time. But, oh boy, we could really have an interesting convention. <laughs> we oh, could yeah. have a really interesting time in oh, Milwaukee. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, what, what,
0: what I hear yeah. is that that's where the Bloomberg factor. No question. Could be the, the the big elephant in the room there. where it, Because once you get past that first ballot, the notorious superdelegates super delegates come into yeah. play.
4: They tend to be a more conservative So you're a superdelegate. But, see, I don't think this is obvious. I think this is fascinating. I don't think it's obvious. You're a superdelegate. So what matters more to you? Does it matter more that um, I'm going to have a nominated candidate who's going to have endless amounts of money? Because you're running for president of the United States. Any candidate is going to have an ability to get their message out. That's not actually a factor at all. And in this environment, everyone's raising a billion dollars. Michael Bennett, if he becomes a nominee, is going to have his message heard. And he's going to, I mean, it's going to be okay. Is the money-wise is going to be okay. We can answer the question exactly how it's going to be okay with Bloomberg. Okay, so let's set that aside. Do you want someone who could have a lot of money? I got Bloomberg. On the other hand, you know, this is Mike Bloomberg, who was like a keynote speaker at the 2004 RNC for George W. Bush. Mm-hmm. He's a Republican, basically, his entire life. Um, he's not exactly, he's stop and frisk. He's all these things. Is that. Is that what you're really going to do in a time when the party has moved so far to the left that you're going to nominate a 78 year old white guy? Well, I guess we're going to find out who's (laughs)
0: right. James Pindle, Boston Globe, Ace, presidential campaign reporter, thank you so much for joining us on Studio BC. It's a lot of fun.
1: The answer is more technology. More and better. More More and 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 better. Oh my God! Yeah, we might have a brokered convention. Yeah. Yes. when was the last time that happened? And who? Wait, I don't know that Bloomberg wins at a brokered convention. Uh, I think Klobuchar is setting herself up potentially to be that compromise candidate. She's never lost an election. She she has openly talked about this potentially being. Her, her route. Mm-hmm.
2: her role to come in there to get well, the t- nomination.
0: I'll tell you what, uh, Bernie Sanders won't win a brokered convention. I'll tell he you why. He has
2: remember will not. friends.
0: Remember the super delegates? Mm-hmm. Yes. These are people, uh, elected officials, ex officio Democratic politicians, um, and they were always allowed to have a vote right. at the convention on the first ballot. Hillary Clinton ran up the score in the delegate count against Bernie Sanders in 2016 largely because of overwhelming support from the superdelegates. One of the big reforms that the party pushed through to placate the anguished protests from the Sanders camp uh, was that this time around, uh, superdelegates don't vote on the first mm-hmm. ballot, mm-hmm. but they do on subsequent ballots. So if a first ballot is indecisive in, uh, where is it again? Uh, Charlotte, right? It's Charlotte, Charlotte, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, heads up and look out. Yeah. Uh, because it could be a very, very different perspective seizing control of that moment.
2: Sure. And in light of Hillary Clinton's thoughts about Bernie Sanders, uh, yeah. which nobody emerged likes him. Yeah. that nobody likes him, nobody wants to work with him, he was never able to convince anybody. It's not going to be pretty. And him and
0: him and Deval Patrick both.
2: Particularly mm. uncomfortable if Warren or Sanders one of them has to win New Hampshire. That's that's pretty bad if they're not going to win their neighboring state, right? Yeah,
0: it so is bad. He's,
2: he's going to well.
1: win New Hampshire. Sanders You're on, okay. Oh, yeah. There you on go. A bold time. prediction. No, yeah. no question. Yeah. I don't know uh-huh. who wins Iowa. He yeah. wins New Hampshire. Who knows Biden about Nevada? Wins Biden Carolina. wins South Carolina and then we're we'll stop. Biden's right Jesus. there in both places. Yeah, yeah. He'll no, he'll finish well there. But but Bernie's gonna win New Hampshire. Mark it down hmm. now. All right, on that note. On
2: that note uh, keep telling your friends about yeah. this podcast subscribe and share our twitter handle is at Studio BZ Pod. I'm at Paula Eben
1: I'm at Keller at Large. I am at Liam WBZ Yes, yeah, smash that subscribe button tell right. your friends about it tell us what you do and don't like about the show only send nice things about me of course right. <laughs> uh, because I can't handle it if you don't say and, something nice
0: and come back for another heaping helping next week when we'll Will be Z-ing seeing you, you.
1: Do you guys listen to the podcast? To yes. our podcast yes. once it's yes. posted? Yeah. In the car. Yeah. I do too. Have you looked at what time it is, John? Yes. Yeah.
2: Have, have
0: a yes. good Thank you.
1: Bye.